I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is Josh Berg. Josh is Managing Director of Magna Technology Investments at Magna International. In this role, he oversees all direct investments, governments, portfolio management, and partnerships with startup companies, VC funds, accelerators, and incubators. So cool work that Josh is doing with Magna Technology Investments. Really interesting, impactful stuff. We touched on this at the beginning, but honestly, the majority of this time is spent talking about other things. And it's built around this core idea that I've been really repeatedly going back to on this podcast, which is the idea that, yes, technology innovation is great, mandatory if we're going to make an impact in the mobility space, but it's not enough that technology innovation doesn't really mean much or really anything if we can't build and lead sustainable, effective, high-performing teams and organizations around that technology so we can bring it into the world. And so we talk about leadership. We talk about career planning and strategy and how startup founders should think about building their teams and how to know if you are an effective leader, how to improve as a leader, these types of things. And really fun, wide-ranging discussion here. Obviously, a topic that, I mean, I'm certainly very passionate and excited about. Josh as well comes through in the discussion. So I'll leave it there right now. Really fun discussion from my perspective. Please enjoy this conversation with Josh Berg. Today, I'm joined by Josh Berg. Josh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation here. So to, to frame things, right? So one of the, this this podcast focused on making transportation safer, more sustainable, more effective, more accessible. One of the core beliefs that has come up and that I've I've come to believe throughout this is that technology innovation is the first piece of that, it's a critical piece of it, but it's also, it can't end there because technology innovation is useless if you can't actually build a sustainable organization around it that allows mm-hmm. you to put that technology into the world and make the impact that you're trying to make. So one of, and I think we're going to focus on the, the second kind of half of that conversation, that equation here, which is develop technology. What what goes into then building an organization, leading an organization, whether it's a startup or or corporate, 
and doing that effectively so that you can actually make the impact you're trying to make with your technology. And I'm, I'm really excited. You have some great thoughts here, unique background here. So I'm, I'm excited to get into that type of stuff. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, maybe I'll do, I'll do a quick introduction on, on kind of Magna and, and what I do for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let's dive right in. I love the way you even frame the question, Brandon, because because um, you know I, I care quite a bit about this. So, Magna Technology Investments, we are the group within Magna that does um, early stage investing in startup companies, partnering with startups. You could call it a corporate venture capital organization within. Um, it's important to note, you know, we are investing off the balance sheet. We do not have a separate dedicated fund, and we're part of the the greater Magna organization, um, Magna International Organization. Uh, Magna, you know, I think about this quite a lot, but really, if your goal in life is to make a positive impact on the future of the world for, you know, yourself and your community and also your legacy, your children, grandchildren, et cetera, uh, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a place um, more central to that than Magna. I mean, we sit at the intersection of the future of how vehicles get around, um, transportation, right? Future of how people are connected to each other, to their vehicles, to infrastructure, the future of electrification, autonomy, manufacturing, sustainability, climate tech. I mean, it's actually kind of amazing how broad of uh, of uh, or wide spectrum of you know topics that we really touch being one of the largest uh, automotive suppliers and technology companies in the world and one of the largest um manufacturers as well cool yeah and those are certainly things that are important to me and i think a lot of the listeners so that, that that's cool to hear and uh actually if, if you don't mind a bit, bit more context on so why why in, in your mind is there value in having the the venture side here like what 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 value are providing to magna by doing the work that you guys are doing yeah i mean it probably won't surprise you i get asked that question all of the time mm-hmm. um there's there's some like very tangible things and then there are some intangibles that are equally important but harder to you know objectively measure right so the tangibles are uh you know kind of simple uh, any venture capital group uh has some you know financial element to it right we do not invest for an immediate cash on cash return on our investment i care about making money on behalf of the company it's just not our top priority right our top priority is strategic to Magna. Our goal is to advance the global strategy of Magna across the entire organization. So, you know, in simple terms, it's the startup that you have built, like, is your company focused on something that can some way supercharge a product technology service that we are already working on? And that that applies not just to Magna, but to any large corporation, right? It's can you make something bigger, stronger, faster, more efficient, safer, you know, less expensive, whatever it is. and then, like the second um, element, there is: are there um, areas of technology or products or services that we're not focused on today, but perhaps we should be? Or hey, they're coming and they're going to disrupt our industry. And if you wait until you're disrupted, well, then it's already too late, right? And there's, you know, a gazillion examples throughout history where really successful, sophisticated executives and companies have waited too long and they are not around anymore, right? So Mm -hmm. it's really a hedge against obsolescence. Um, And in our industry, that is particularly important because we are, you know, changing and being disrupted, it seems like every day, right? The entire automotive transportation mobility industry. 
Uh, some of the intangibles, um, Brandon, that I think are worth noting is, you know, large organizations are large political complex matrixed organizations. People have different priorities, um, different incentives, etc. And so, you know, oftentimes you hear of this like not invented here mentality from a large company, right? Um, you know, you approach a group of engineers and you say, hey, we want to go off and do this or a group of product managers. And they just say, well, we could do that, you know, if, if we wanted to or, you know, that's not that hard. Mm -hmm. And um, having a venture organization, it forces those people on the ground or in the middle of your organization to just honestly be exposed to what's going on in the world around them. They don't have to say yes or no. They don't have to dedicate resources, but they get exposure. Right. And if you do things effectively, it helps kind of like motivate and inspire and broaden the perspective of the people that are really like make your organization work. The people at the bottom and at the middle um, and at the top of the organization, the executives in any large company, it, the value to them is that their people aren't always bringing these ideas to them, right? Sometimes it's for political reasons, but other times it's just, they simply don't know. They're focused every day on the solutions that they already have on their roadmaps. Um, and then I would say the final piece that's important to note is there's talent everywhere in the world. I mean, I, I'm fortunate enough, I talk to brilliant people on a daily basis. And some of those people, their personality or their priorities in life, um, they, don't, they don't lend themselves to working in a large organization. And so if you want those people to work on your problems, you have to do it through the startup community. So they're not gonna come and join your company. Yeah, and maybe the last question in this specific vein before we tra transition that I have is, so when, how do you find the right topics and find the right balance of time, effort, and attention to provide on? So when you look at technologies, when you look at trends that have the ability to completely disrupt and have an impact on Magnus Core Business, how, how do you somehow prioritize and figure out where to, and like, right, there, there's been big ones, electrification, autonomy, shared mobility, connectivity, software, find vehicles, these types of things, but even something emergent recently, right, with like chat GPT and large language models. Some yeah. people say, hey, this is transforming everything and software development is irrelevant for in certain areas because just AI is going to eat the world and like, how do you, but it's, there are also uses for it. So like, how, how do you find the right balance between paying attention to stuff that comes up and not overreacting as new trends come and go? Boy, I love that question because um, I am not an overreactor. I've been doing this now for seven, eight years as a corporate investor. And I can I can give you a lot of examples where I thought this was going to take over the world and the company failed and the fad went away. And so I just no longer over-index to the moment. Um, you know, I, I was uh, an investor. I've been an investor when we were told that, you know, virtual reality and we're all going to live in the metaverse and nobody's going to have any physical in-person contact. Uh, you know, blockchain's taking over everything for how we trade art and do sports cards to um, there's no more money anywhere. It's all digital currency, you know, AI, electrification, autonomy. And now I, you know, over time, I've grown to appreciate that all of these things have their place in the world and create can create incredible impact. But there are fads and there are hype and you can't overreact to any of them. And one, there is no answer as to like, what's the best way not to overreact and to balance. There isn't one. The best investors in the world tend to be wrong 80% of the time. So um, I think that's actually critical to understand is you can't predict the future. 
no matter how smart you believe you are, you're going to get it wrong more than you're going to get it right. And as long as you approach it with a degree of humility, then for me, I am focused on the product for sure, the product or technology, but my primary focus is on the person. It's just the management team and the CEO of that company, she or he, um, they are the single um, most important uh, indicator of future success of that company. And hmm. when I say future success, it's not just financial success, but it's also the impact that company product service technology has on the world. Uh, it is flat out hard to build, start and build a company. 90% will fail. So what makes somebody that succeeds different from somebody that fails? It's the leader at the top. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a good uh, good transition point here. And that, it, this, this maybe seems unrelated, but I think it, it ties in nicely. So one, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on a, a framework that you've, you've shared in the past on vertical versus horizontal climbing within a given corporate world or just kind of career career in general can you expand on that introduce and expand on that topic yeah yeah for sure i um so i i'm really big on career visioning and and more than career life visioning right thinking long out into the future and building a plan to will lead towards success and so um many i've had countless conversations with people in my career, many of which I consider mentors. And so, you know, my my ideas and reflections, they are a combination of many other people's thoughts. So um, I certainly wouldn't want to take credit for anybody else. But where I'm at today, the way that I view um, navigating a career, especially within like complex corporate environments, you know, like really small businesses, this may not apply to as much, but certainly corporations, it does. Um, small, medium, and, and large-sized corporations, is that there are, there are two ladders. So we have all heard the phrase of climbing the corporate ladder, right? And I agree that it's actually it's a pretty good image, right, of climbing rung after rung after rung. And I've, I've really identified or come to believe that there are two types of ladders. There's a vertical ladder, and then there's a horizontal climb or a horizontal ladder. And so what I mean by that is the vertical ladder is is the ladder that we are all familiar with. So as an example, you're, you aspire to be the chief engineer of your organization and you're 22 years old and you just got out of undergrad engineering school and you wanna take on the world and that's your goal long-term. Okay, great. So you have a choice then. You can stay within the engineering vertical your entire career and that is a viable career path. You start out, we'll say as an engineering analyst, you become an assistant manager, then a manager, director, associate director, VP, you know, at some point you're chief engineer, whatever the, the titles are within your company, mm-hmm. but you climb within that vertical. And the, the the value that you bring to yourself and the organization by doing it that way is you truly become an expert. You're not just an expert as an engineer, but an expert on how to be effective within your organization as an engineer. You learn every role along the way. And then hopefully you also have an appreciation for the organization that reports to you and it leads to being a more effective, you know, executive. And so that is the path that a lot of people take, right? They, they come into an organization fresh out of school and they aspire, whatever it is, I want to be an executive. And then they just think, all right, I look at my boss above me and I'm like, I need to get my boss's job. And at some point their job and just climb the ladder. Um, the challenge with that is, A, most people, when they join an organization, they don't have clarity of purpose where they're like, hey, I want to be chief engineer. This is the role I want. Most people, maybe they say, I want to be a leader in this organization, but I don't 
don't know exactly which vertical that I want to be a leader within. Or I'm not sure where my career could go. I mean, you know, I, I don't know the statistics, but many, many, many people you talk to end up in a job that is different than their undergraduate degree, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have a degree in basically engineering, medicine, or education, you probably aren't doing a job today that was specific to your degree. It's unlikely, right? And so those people come in and they get a bit lost on this like notion of conventional corporate climbing the corporate ladder. So to me, a vertical climb means that if you look at a large matrix organization, let's start at the top. You have you have a chief executive officer, and then that person has like their their cabinet, their C-suite. So maybe you have chief technology officer, chief marketing, chief finance, uh, you know, chief information officer, chief revenue officer, you know, they come in, in a variety of titles. And then within those chiefs, they have big, complex organizations. Product might map up to revenue officer. There could be three or four different product organizations within a large company. Um, you know, where does marketing sit? Where does finance, accounting, legal, HR? These are all different parts, important parts of a larger organization. So if you want to be in the C-suite, um, it is not enough most of the time for you to just understand how engineering works. Um, you need to understand how the greater organization works. Um, it's, you know, these are global, complex organizations. They're not mom and pop companies anymore. So, um in order to do that early in your career, especially, is the greatest opportunity for you to move around horizontally um, amongst different organizations. So, you know, if you come in as an analyst on the finance team, you 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 are capable if you do well at your job and you develop strong relationships within your organization, you're excellent in everything you do, you work hard, you're capable then of being an analyst in the marketing department, in the sales department, maybe in engineering, maybe in finance, maybe maybe in HR. And so if you play it out, you start as an analyst in engineering and then you get finance experience, just that alone, when there is an opening for a manager of engineering, you are qualified for it because you've been in the engineering organization, but you're also qualified for a manager in the finance organization because you have that experience. So now you have like doubled the amount of manager level jobs you were qualified for. So if you extrapolate that out, if you have five different horizontal moves early in your career that those are five entire organizations that that if you were good at what you did and you learned and you excelled you could lead those organizations right so if you take my career i'm a lawyer by training i practiced law for a few years but i have now experience in law and public policy and government relations in operations in sales in web development um, in product in strategy and marketing, and so, and and all of those different experiences. That's really what led me to be a, a venture capital investor, because you, you kind of need to understand the complexities of organizations in order to invest in them. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it also prepares me, frankly, to be an executive at a large company as well. Yeah, th- thanks yeah. for that. And I mean, certainly that jives well with my kind of world and, and there are certainly places for the vertical right specialists the phd the technical expert like there there are there is a place yeah. in in organizations for that type of person but for from a if we're talking about a business leadership perspective and i, I think back i think the guy's david epstein who wrote the book uh range which i just uh, came oh, up in like conversation that. last week but i think it's a good framework from the sports world right of the comparison 
the superficial comparison is between Tiger Woods and Roger Federer, right? And Tiger Woods has super early specialization because golf is a very predictable game. That's best for golf because you're doing the same thing and you, there's not a ton of variability. Yeah, sure. You have different shots and stuff, but like you, it's nowhere near as dynamic as the game of tennis where Roger Federer didn't play tennis growing up. He played every other sport and then became the greatest tennis player or one of the greatest yeah. tennis players of all time, depending on yeah. if you're a Djokovic guy. But uh, because, and so like in a dynamic world, which I think mirrors the current business world we're in much better than the special, like the world new stuff coming up all the time. The mobility space in particular is changing all the time. The ability to quickly evolve and adjust and move into different things often depends on a leader who has the ability to understand everything that's going on around them to some capacity, right? Yeah, I think there's um, modern leadership is different in our era than it ever has been because the internet um, provided, you know, it, it gave the general population access to unlimited knowledge. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer about what you know, it's how you lead, right? Nobody can know everything any longer. Um, so leaders in particular, you know, 21st century leaders are oftentimes an expert in nothing other than leadership, but leadership is the key, right? That's really how you, how you motivate an entire organization to achieve something amazing. Yeah. And I'd be curious. So you mentioned that this framework is probably most relevant in the corporate world, which I think makes a lot of sense, but I'd be interested to get your thoughts in a smaller organization startup world, maybe, maybe. I don't know, selfishly taking my own own example, right? So I'm, I'm, oh, I'm leading, le leading a growing organization. We have people with functional responsibilities. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, this is a unique opportunity for the ops guys to get involved in sales and program management and for the program manager to see what goes into, because with my thought being, you know, if, if these individuals, as we're growing, we're going to have to become more specialized because there's going to be more work to be done in certain areas and there's going to be more domain expertise that needs to be built up and focus on executing within that function. But I've been trying to think about, well, I think there's value in exposing everyone to different parts of the business so that, you know, when we do have a large running ops operations, the person who's leading that function it's great if they understand if they really understand the value to our customer and the customer's needs and the way in which everything else in the operation goes. How, how would you think about that situation and within a growing team potentially trying to build a well-rounded leadership organization? Yeah, boy, I, I love it. I mean, you know this about me, but leadership is really important. And, um, and I think about it a lot and, um, you know, I think of leadership as a role, right? So where you are, if you are the leader of an organization, Brandon, like that is your job, but your job is to lead. And in my opinion, you can define leadership by motivation, prioritization, and inspiration, right? And those are simple ideas, but complex to execute, on, right? So how do you motivate an organization, Same. right? Motivation, motivate an organization. How do you inspire the people to do their best and and how do you prioritize? Right. And um, and so the, the starting point for all of that as a leader, especially a new leader in, in an organization, because that's the hardest time. Right. Is to realize that you are not important, not more important than the people that report to you or the people that indirectly report to you. Right. And that mm -hmm. 
like I want to say it again because it's really important. You are not more important as a human being, as a leader or a manager than the people that report to you. You're not more valuable. You're not a, a, a more impressive person. It's just you have a role. And so does everybody else on your team, directly or indirectly. They have a role. And everyone's role is equally important if you want to achieve greatness. And so um, you approach it as my job is to prioritize for my team. Some of those priorities come from me. Some of them come from my leadership and, and, and our, our broader C-suite and board of directors and corporate strategy. Right. And my job is to identify all those, understand them well, how we fit and then prioritize the work for my team. Sometimes those are nitty gritty priorities. Write this email. Don't write this one. And and sometimes they're broader priorities, you know, focus on this area and not this area. Right. Um, prioritization in some ways ends up being the easiest of them because it's, it, you know, it's it's a little bit more tangible for people to chew on. But um, motivate and inspire is harder for people, leaders to do, especially people that aren't maybe naturally inclined to leadership, right? And so I, I differentiate those two things. I think that we are all motivated by different things. And so your first job is to actually consider what motivates the people around you. Um, not what motivates you, but take the time to listen and ask questions and understand what motivates people on your team. Because I think you'll be surprised to find that sometimes it's money, sometimes it's prestige, sometimes it's freedom and flexibility, sometimes it's recognition, sometimes it's like just um, the satisfaction of a job well done, you know, sometimes it's supporting one's family. I mean, there are a lot of different things. And um, and when I first became a manager, I, I was uh, I made a number of mistakes, quite frankly, because I made a lot of assumptions based on what motivates me. And, and it wasn't the same thing as motivated the people on my team. Um, and then the, uh, the third one is, um, actually, you know what, before I move on to the third one, I just want to give a shout out. There was a guy that I worked with years ago at, at General Motors named David Whitman. I, he's not at GM anymore. I don't know what he's doing now, but um, um, he's, uh, he was in HR at the time. And we were going through like a kind of a difficult patch at the company and he was brought in to do some training to the broader organization around um, around this concept of motivation. And um, I learned something really important there as a new manager in, in an organization, which is um, around recognition. So like for me, um, you want to recognize me, the best way to do it is to like get on CNN and talk about how amazing I am. So millions of people can see it. Like, that's what I want. I want global grand recognition, you know, like that, that gets me going. I'll smile for a week. If you talk about me in an all employee meeting about me being effective. Um, but I had somebody on my team, one of my favorite employees ever, incredibly effective. And she, her worst nightmare was being recognized in an all employee meeting. And when she told me that my, my initial reaction was, yeah, she's just saying that and maybe she'll be embarrassed. But when the embarrassment goes away, she's going to be really happy to have been recognized publicly. And mm -hmm. it turns out after like <clears throat> being humble as a leader and really wanting to understand, not just wanting to be right and really trying to understand from my my best employee, frankly, that I was wrong. Like she the best recognition for her was one-on-one -on -one 
me giving her qualitative feedback, not just, hey, you did a great job on this, but explaining what was great about her job and the outcome that that yielded and why I really appreciated. And that personal feedback, that was the absolute best recognition. And public, grand public recognition wasn't just not effective. It actually made her feel undervalued and not happy in her time, right? Um, and that, boy, I mean, that blew my mind. And actually, you know, side note, I um, one of my favorite things in the world is when I'm wrong about something that I think I'm right about, and then you learn otherwise. So that that was an amazing experience for me as a new leader. Yeah, and no, I want I want you to be able to get back to your thought on, on inspiration, but I have I have to ask a follow up question here. So, so one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is is motivation, and I mean, so you're talking about here specifically, it's it's there's a difference between what's motivational for you and, and this individual, yes, but there's also, and this is kind of more at the granular level of kind of the the method of motivation, but then there's the kind of the underlying source of motivation. One of the things I've been struggling with is you know building a culture building. I don't One of the things that's super motivated, probably the most motivational for me is the ability to do significant, meaningful work that has a positive impact on our employees, our customers, our community. Yeah. And to do that in a way that's, you know, fun. We get to come do like that. That in itself is fun. Solving hard problems and yeah. doing it in a way that has a positive impact. Yeah. And so the question I have from a motivational perspective is like, if I'm trying to build a culture in which that's what we're, that's what it's about, and that's what this organization does, does everyone need to be motivated by that same underlying objective, or is it fine if you have someone who, yeah, they they like the title, they like the money, they like, yeah, sure, that's that's great. It's better to do positive work, and it's better to do significant work than it is to do non-significant work and be stuck. But like, does that need to be the same north star for everyone if we're going to build this overall culture that prioritizes that? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, like many things in life, I'm not sure there is an answer, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess my response to that is what you are talking about is inspiration and not motivation. It's a good actual yeah. segue, right? I do think clarity of purpose is incredibly important, right? People need to know um, what they do and how that fits into a grander vision and the most successful organizations time and time again, everyone's rowing in the same direction toward the same goal. And so that does need to be the case. Like whatever gets you going in the morning because we want to achieve this and how this fits into a grander vision, boy, everybody in your organization should understand and feel some element of passion towards achieving that as well. Uh, You know, motivation is more granular. So like, you know, I may be, you know, the, the, you know, famous story of like a a bricklayer and, you know, you're like, hey, I just lay bricks and hey, I'm building the grandest church in the world. Like, both people are bricklayers, but one has a grand vision and one does not. Right. So, um, you know, there are people that look for them, they're motivated by coming in and punching in and punching out every day. And like, they don't need to have the same grand vision that you have. Right. So how you motivate somebody Mm -hmm. like that, it may be different, right? Like you need to understand like that person three days a week coming in at 9.30 instead of 9 a.m. or, you know, 9.30 instead of 7 a.m., like, that might be motivating to them, right? And it's your job to figure that out, right, on a day-to-day basis. What gets people going and doing their best work? Um, Yeah, and the fact that that's meaningful, like, 
that doesn't detract from the organization that right. that's what's motivating for them, right? That's, yeah, that's like, what, as, as soon as long as it's okay that they can come in at nine thirty and like they're not somehow yeah, yeah messing up everything. And, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but I think inspiration is about it's about in some cases it's more about the actions that we take as leaders that frankly, cause a negative impact towards inspiration. They're uninspiring. And we don't know Hmm. that they're uninspiring. And so maybe not doing these things is how you achieve inspiration. I know that's maybe a bit backwards, but like, I'll give you an example. I have a number one rule, and this is is my thing, not taken from anybody else. In my career, I have learned that if you want to identify, if you want a simple test as to whether or not you are an effective leader, here it is for you. Flat out, if I call you or text you and you see on caller ID that, hey, it's me, it's Josh is calling, no matter what time of day or night it is, what is your reaction to me reaching out to you? And that reaction will tell you everything you need to know as to whether I'm an effective leader. If your reaction is whether out loud or in your head, like, ah, shit, Josh needs something. I got a lot going on today. I'm so busy. Now I got to deal with Josh. Or it's two in the morning and what the hell is my boss calling me at two in the morning for or whatever. It's 6 PM on a Friday and I'm about to go on vacation and oh, now I got to deal with Josh. If it doesn't matter your situation, you could be uh, walking down the aisle about to get married. If, if your reaction is negative to me calling you, then I've done a poor job as a leader flat out. Like, and the flip side of that is if your reaction is, and it should be, Oh, Josh is calling me. Like, I'm going to pick up the phone, even in the most inconvenient circumstance, because, like, I value what he has to say. This person respects me every day. They make me feel valued, and they don't dehumanize me, and they motivate me. And, like, look, we are all part of the same team. Josh is the leader of the team, but he doesn't, he doesn't manage me. He's the leader. He's the head of the boat. That's it. We're all in the same boat, though, right? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, look, they... Let's be real. They may not answer the phone. They may send me the voicemail, a text like, hey, it's not a good time. But even that is OK because they're not anxious and nervous about I'm unavailable at the time because, look, I, yeah. I, I'm also OK with that. And they know I'm OK with that. That is the culture that we have cultivated collectively. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And as you were talking, I was cause like, yeah, ho- hopefully you're not calling on people at the most inconvenient times a bunch of times. And but like that, that sets the expectation that so like last night, for example, like my, my boss reached out like while I was with my son in time that was yeah an important time for me, right? And yeah. like, if he really needed something more than happy, like, sure, I'll do that because I know he's only going to reach out if he really needs something. But like, I, I felt comfortable enough to say, Hey, yeah, more than happy to chat, but at the same time, just let you know, this is an important time. And if it's, if we can wait until the morning, let's wait until the morning. And like, yeah, I trusted, I had the trust in the relationship that I'm not getting docked points because that was my response, right? Like that's awesome. he knew that if, if it was a time when I could have talked and like, so I'm, there's no, no fear, no regret when I see that coming. It's like, yeah, no, no cool, there's something he wants to talk about, right? but at the same time, yeah, I have, I feel comfortable having a legitimate discussion, not dropping everything and prioritizing over something that's more important, right? Totally. I mean, look, Brandon, I've had wonderful leaders, motivating leaders, and terrible leaders in my career. Anybody that's had a career has had that experience, right? Unless they've been in one company, one boss their whole life, right? And, um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like 
there's this misconception out there that sometimes as a leader, sometimes you just have to have a tough conversation. And if the person walks away upset or demotivated or uninspired, look, those are the breaks. Sometimes you just have to be direct with somebody and they're not always going to be happy. And I actually disagree with that fundamentally. Like, yes, there are times, let's be clear, where you have to give somebody feedback and you know that feedback is going to be painful. Um, and you are doing them a favor by giving them that feedback, right? And those confrontation is difficult. Interpersonal confrontation is really hard. And oftentimes we avoid it, which is probably why you end up having a conversation that's really hard that doesn't go well because you would avoid it all along the way. But like, it's not to say there aren't moments that you do need to talk about something unpleasant. There are 100% of the time. But there's a difference between the principal talking down to the students and getting in trouble for doing something versus like, you're not in trouble. I'm just, I, I'm expressing this to you because like, as your leader and as your friend and colleague, like this is important and you maybe didn't realize it before. You know, like there's never mm -hmm. a situation where I ever think it's warranted for my employee to leave a conversation feeling belittled or less valued as a human being or anything of that nature. If you're doing it that way, you're doing it wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, and the way you're talking makes me think. So one of my past podcast guests, uh, Leif Babin, and his his co-author, Jocko Willink, it's, it's, this thought process goes uh, goes very well in that, like, the yeah, the re response to I don't know, someone missing a deadline, right, is not like, hey, this is unacceptable, you're yelling at it, but it's like, hey, what? What, what happened here? Like everything Why? okay at home? Like did, did, it, it's it's clear that like you you either didn't understand that this was important or that you didn't have the right things in place to be able to execute on this. Like, can we have a conversation here, right? And and the the important thing too of that questioning is not it's not that you're asking those questions as a front and you actually have this judgment in the back of your mind that like, oh, this guy just doesn't know what he's doing and I'm I'm going to ask these questions because it's nice, but like I'm I'm judging, but like no, you have to legitimately be like, hey, like. I don't know, you, you work here and you've, you have a great track record of like, you, you do your job well. Like what happened here? Like what's, what's going on? Right. What well, happens? It's not accusatory. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm with that, you know, a hundred percent. I am uh, talking down to people. I mean, look, the, the single biggest factor in anybody's happiness at work by far, talk to anybody, your friends, family, anybody that you talk to on your podcast, I guarantee if you get down to it, they will admit this. The single greatest factor is who you directly report to. You could work for the most wonderful organization in the world, but if your boss is a jerk, you're not going to be happy um, because that is your daily interaction, right? And so um, I just think there is knowing that as a leader, boy, that's an incredible opportunity and an incredible responsibility. Like there is mm -hmm. no excuse, in my opinion, for everybody in my team not loving their job. Right. Every day they're daily. They, they should be talking to their friends and family as if, oh, yeah, Magna is an amazing place to work. We're doing exciting things. And Josh, you couldn't ask for a better leader. You know, Josh, that's my guy. You know, like that is my mm -hmm. goal every day. Now, there are times when like the economy shifts or market forces happen and you don't you're disappointed in careers. You don't get to launch a product you wanted to launch or look, that happens. That's outside of our control. There are times you're disappointed, but it shouldn't take away, detract from your your daily happiness, frankly, at, at a job. And how do you think about, so there's a, 
apparent dichotomy kind of bubbling yeah. up from this conversation, yeah. right? Of like, we, you, you mentioned at the beginning, right? That impact success of the leader, it's dis- disproportionately dependent on the leader doing a good job. And you have someone who is in that role and playing the role of the leader and doing it well, that's going to have a huge impact on the success of that organization, of that team, of that group, whatever. At the same time, and these, these two things are both true, that person is no more, is no better, no, right. They're, they're not elevated over everyone else as you, I, I can't remember exactly yeah, how they're yeah. not, not more important, but like, how, how do you handle that dichotomy of, yes, this person has an outsized disproportionate impact on the success of the team, but at the same time, they're not more important or better than anyone else in the team. Boy, I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Because the, the way you really handle it is it's about outcome, not ego. And, um, you know, ego is leadership. But that's a really easy thing to read about and to talk about. But we all do have egos and we all have insecurities and ambitions. And so our egos get in the way. there, Right. And so, um, you know, Brandon, I'll give you an example. When I was first became a manager in my career, uh, well, maybe not first, but first as like a professional post law school, you know, manager, I was 29 years old and I was put in a position where. I was managing a team of five to seven people, and every one of them, we'll say, was in their mid-40s and um, had a lot, like, vastly more experience than I did in, in the area that I was appointed a manager. And and um, a lot of them had, you know, MBAs and other degrees that I didn't have, and, like, you know, they were really qualified for their roles, more qualified for their roles than I was for their role. But somebody at the very top identified me as the most qualified to lead that group. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, here I am 29. I'm feeling really proud of myself. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm going to take on the world. Next stop, CEO. Right. And and my only experience at that point being a leader was looking at leaders that I had had earlier in my career. And those people were all like my way or the highway and everyone following line. And and those were the examples I had. And so I thought that was the way that I should approach being a leader. So I come in on your first day, right? And your first like couple weeks. And, you know, in me, my first thought was, all right, I got a little bit of imposter syndrome. I don't know about this organization. I got a bunch of people on my team that can do things that I don't really know about. But boy, I can't let them know that, right? Because I've been put in charge of this team, right? So I have to sound like and be the expert in everything that I say, and I have to make decisions and be, you know, emphatic in my decisions and, and decisive and all of that, right? And and so what very quickly happened is I had a team of five people that were disillusioned, felt undervalued, and were resentful for me as their leader. And and you know, I'm I'm I am comfortable enough with myself to admit now that like I truly made that mistake in my first role at 29. Like it was awful. And what changed for me is that I had an HR person who called me in her office and she's like, Josh, look, the organization as a whole like believes in you. Um, but I want to let you know that a couple of people have given me um, feedback that, that you're arrogant. Right. I'm like, Oh, great. You know, look, I'm very confident. There's a difference between confidence and arrogance confidence is what got me to where I am, you know, and, um, and then she gave me a book and it had a tab on it for, to a chapter called arrogance. And reluctantly, I read the chapter, even arrogantly enough thinking I'm not arrogant. Right. And, uh, and, 
I don't remember. I probably, you know, I don't remember the whole thing, but I remember the, 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 the essence of it, which was the description. And it was, how do people feel around you? What is the impact of your arrogance? So they call it arrogance. It doesn't matter what we call it, but it's how are people feeling? And the descriptions were people are feeling smaller and people are feeling not motivated and worthless. And, you know, these really horrible things that I never want to feel myself. And that is not the leader that I want to be. Uh, so, you know, I, I threw away this like military hierarchy concept of like my way or the highway. And instead, I took the approach of like. I took a, a humility approach, like, look, I can't do the jobs that all of you are doing. Um, my job is to lead the team, not to be the analyst or the product manager, or whatever the roles are. And um, and I started asking for their advice and their opinion in team meetings and one on ones and in public in public amongst my peers, where one of the other directors would say, hey, we should do this. And they're looking for me to make the decision. And I turn to somebody on my team and I'd say, you know, Jim or Lori or, you know, what do you think here? Like you're in this in the trenches, you know, and boy, I started to notice that the reaction that I was getting and, and frankly, the quality of our decisions like leveled up so tremendously. I've never gone back from that. You know, it's about outcome, not ego. Um, and I use that approach now in everything I do, not just leading a team, but negotiating a deal, right? Like I don't have to be the one that wins the negotiation. I just have to get, I have to achieve my objective for myself and for the organization. However, that happens. Yeah. You follow? Yeah. I think that's a, that's yeah. a yeah, that's a, that's a really good framework and a good story. Good, good experience to have had right early in the career of having that, that negative learning opportunity that also had to have the, the person to point out something you will have in the humility to be able to reflect and be like, Oh, I guess. I guess this is a blind spot in, in the way I've been doing things. Yeah. And trust. I mean, people talk about trust a lot. It's in a lot of books around leadership, but it's in those books because it's real, right? If you don't trust the people yeah. that report to you, they don't trust you. It's only a matter of time before you make a bad decision or you disillusion somebody, you know? Yeah. And I want to, I want to speak a bit about specifically startup founder. Um, and and oh, you cool. mentioned... You mentioned objective vision strategy. So, so one of the things I, I'd be curious to get your thought on is like how, and I think you have some unique thoughts around like the early stages, right? So like the the nucleus, the precipice of this this organization, like mm -hmm. thinking about objectives and defining. So can you talk to like what what in those early stage seed stage, like what what is it that are the main factors that sets an organization up for success? Cool. Yeah, you know I love this topic too. So. Um... All right, Brandon, uh, a couple things on this topic. Um, the first one is, if you are the founder of a company, you have four things that you need to achieve that will lead to your success. And if you don't achieve all four of those, you will not be successful. And this is every company that's ever been created, right? It is, you need to grow an organization. So that means you need to hire people and who do you hire and where do you put them and when do you do it, right? You need to run a company, which is the operations aspect, which is identifying objectives and then achieving results. Um, then you need to build a product or service, which depending on what your company does, there's some underlying technology, pro technology product or service. And your overall goal is you are creating magic somehow. You are establishing something in the world that doesn't exist today. 
And that is a magical experience for people. Um, and then finally, mm -hmm. you have to fund a vision. And that's a key one that sometimes gets overlooked is funding a vision means you have to identify a vision and then get people to rally behind that vision and give people something to believe in. And then in practical terms, you need to be able to raise capital, right? And so I have seen time and time again, really impressive people in life that are maybe a technology founder. So that founder, I mean, they're spot on on building a product or service. They're probably the best person in the world to do that, right? And maybe they're pretty good at operations because you know, their skill set lends itself to that. They understand what needs to happen to achieve their goals. And they're good at like kind of running the organization day in and day out to achieve those goals. Um, perhaps they're even good at growing the organization and they know what it takes and who you have to hire where and there to get it. But what they can't do is fundraise. So <laughs> what what is commonly a mistake is a technical founder will um, they'll look at the past and say, well, boy, you know, I got to be Mark Zuckerberg. That was a technical founder and he learned how to be a CEO, arguably. Right. And um, and uh, and so why can't I do that? Why can't I be the person that's pitching in front of in front of investors? And why can't I be the person that's giving the media interviews? And it's because maybe you're not the best person to do that. And that is about, again, back to humility and outcome and not ego. Like there's it is incredibly rare. In fact, I can't say in my career I have ever identified somebody that is exceptional at all four of these areas. It's just not usually possible, right? And so it's about outcome, not ego. Find the people, the partners that you need, the management team that you need, and round out those experiences. Maybe it's okay to be the CEO that's the head of product, but not the head of fundraising. Maybe it's okay to be the head of sales, but not the head of technology. Um, you've got, mm -hmm. it's about outcome, not ego. Um, I have a, uh, personal mantra that this is my philosophical side, but it's this, uh, it's this concept called Saprosine and it's ancient Greek. And so in the, uh, in, in ancient Greece on the Delphic Oracle, people would travel far and wide to go to the Oracle, seek wisdom and written etched in stone at the top of the Oracle was this Greek concept of Saprosine, which gets translated to know yourself and know your limitations. And that is not a negative thing. When we talk about limitations, we think of like, you know, oh, I need to work on my weaknesses. And, you know, look, we all have weaknesses. None of us are perfect, but also none of us are great at everything. Like the key is know what you don't know and then find people that are amazing at those things. Because I promise you, there's a lot of things to be amazing at and we're not all good at everything. Do you have any tactical advice for how to better know yourself? Right. So like, yeah, that we're good at humans kind of inherently are pretty bad at judging themselves unless they have some, some way to right? like, I, I had no idea until I did a bunch of interviews in college that for whatever reason I came across as like super unemotional and like, I, I, I oh, took me 10 interviews before I got to a second round of an interview just despite a really I don't know, a, a resume that got me any, any interview that I wanted. Yeah, like yeah. I couldn't get to the next phase because I was just awful at the interviewing piece. So like it took that feedback and then some reflection to get to the point of like, oh, here are the gaps that I need to close. But do you have any that you've used or recommend of like ways for people to effectively figure out what they're good at and what they aren't? Yeah, for sure. Like 
there are a lot of tools out there. I've, I've taken all sorts of assessments and all of them are valuable in certain ways. Like the one that I currently like the most is called Strength Finder. It's, uh, yep. you know, you can find it. We've all actually, a lot of us have done Strength Finder, but I think it's, if you're going to do it, um, you know, I think don't just jump in, take the assessment and be like, great, these are my strengths. What I would encourage you to do is think mm-hmm. about why it matters to identify your strengths and then what strengths you've identified and why those are strengths. And so what I mean by that is what blew me away by Strength Finder in particular is that the author identified, I want to say it's like 32 different strengths or 28 different strengths in the world. And so when I got my top four, I went and started reading the other strengths. And similar to like a horoscope, you know, sometimes you read something and you're like, oh, this is me. This epitomizes who I yeah. am. But when I read the other strengths, I'm like, oh, boy, this is like not just the opposite of who I am, but I'm like nauseated reading it. You know, like, oh, you are somebody that that pays attention to every fine detail and likes to catalog those details in like numerical analytical order. And I'm like, oh, my God, when I read this, like I can't even get through it. I start having a headache. It's so opposite of who I am. Right. But there are millions of people in the world that will read that. And to them, they're like, oh, finally, somebody gets me. This is exactly who I am. Right. And so when you start to realize that there's a whole world of strengths out there, um, then you start to appreciate the fact of like your strengths make you special. And sometimes we forget that because there are strengths. They come naturally to us. So, like, I love building relationships. I love meeting people. I love meeting new people. And um, that is actually a very um, important strength of mine that I didn't quite really realize until, you know, maybe 10 years ago because it just comes naturally to me. So, like, no, it's not a strength. It's just what I do every day, right? Like, my wife, by the way, has, like, she identified as a wooer, a woo, which I'd never heard before. And this is somebody that like, lo- like it's important to them that everybody around them loves them. And so as a result, they're like wooing that affection around them. And I'm like, boy, that describes you. I mean, you couldn't get a better description. She read it and she was like blown away that somebody actually articulated who she is and articulated as a strength, which is a different thing than just who you are. Right. Yeah, and that, that, so actually, I, I second the uh, this Clifton Strength or Gallup, yeah, yeah, whatever Clifton Strength Finder. But uh, the yeah, so actually, that that was the most important thing that led me to start this podcast. Actually, so in late wow. late 2019, oh, cool. I did I, I did the Strength Finders thing, and I I got that I was you know I was strategic, analytical, a learner, and a relater, and I can't remember what the top the other things were like. And I dissected that, and I I did some journaling for over a few days. And I'm like, huh, what are what are the, and I'm like, well, actually I long form discussions are something I do well. I tend to relate to people. Well, I'm good at abstracting out complex things and having discussions around stuff. I really enjoy learning. Yeah. What's a good forum to, to do that. And I'm like, Oh, maybe, I, maybe I should talk to people that I can learn from on a podcast. And like, oh, that, I love that. Man. That was what led, yeah, led to this. And it was, I don't know, kind of an inflection point in the, my career and the way I've thought about my career was understanding like, no, these are the things that are uniquely me right and the things that that uh, I, I tend to do well and actually one of my best friends is Wu is the furthest from my <laughs> like it's the last time I left but one of my best friends has that at the top of his list in oh, a similar okay. situation oh that's cool I've never met another one other than my wife so and I've done this now with like 
dozens. Every time I have a new yeah. employee, we do it. Every time I have a new team, you know, I've done a lot now in my career. I'm up, actually next week about to do it with my current team um, and, and our yeah. interns. I'm really excited about it. Um, boy, and the funny thing is like with that disconnect and the, the, so like the first time I met this guy, I couldn't stand him. And I, I'm like, I, this, and he's now like one, one of my best friends that I spend a ton of time with. And I've, I've learned from that experience of like, when I hear, like I, I dissected out the things that I'm like, well, I guess he just so badly needed to get my acceptance and approval that like it turned me off. I'm like, well, let's chill out, chill out guy. And like, I, I've, I've really, I felt that in professional settings a few times too. And I've learned to, well, no, let me, let me give someone second chance. Maybe, maybe this isn't just, maybe there's just a discompatibility here and I just need to appreciate the things that they're bringing to the equation, not oh. just look at it through my own lens. You know, you know what I love about that, Brandon is like, First of all, I think you and I have very similar top four strengths, so it's not surprising that we're, we we can jive over this topic. But, um, you know, it's um, we a company is no different than high school, right? You're going to get a large group of people together and there's going to be a percentage of those people that are, you know, aggressive and jerks and humorous and creative and analytical and like all different flavors, right? And that's group dynamics. And any group is going to have that. And to be successful as a large organization, you need those different like personalities because the people that tend to be the best engineers, sometimes they think about the world differently than the best salespeople or the best, you know, business development people. And it's not right or wrong. It's just how do we get to the best outcome, right? And so I also had to shift my mindset towards like, um, like appreciate people's abilities and forgive them for their flaws. So I focus on their strengths instead of their flaws, everybody now. Um, and it's made me frankly a happier person. And, and hopefully I'm somebody now that people want to work with. Um, cause like some people are really straightforward, black and white, and that can come across as offensive, right? Or they jump to conclusions and it sounds condescending, but they don't mean it. There's no malice involved there. It's just that we take it that way because, you know, you and I, maybe we're stronger on the soft skills and, and less strong on the hard skills potentially. Right. So um, it's, you know, accept people's strengths. I'm sorry. Uh, celebrate people's strengths and forgive them for their flaws. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a good kind of bow on the conversation. I think a uh, also ties well with just a, yeah, assuming positive intent and looking for the best in situations, I think ties in pretty well here. So Josh, this has been a ton of fun. We've talked all in and around many different topics around leadership, some corporate investment, some startup, some corporate ladder climbing, uh, all all over the place, but I, yeah, really fun discussion. I think we've covered a lot of, a lot of good ground. Um, maybe I'll, I'll leave it to you. Is there anything we missed here that you were really hoping to cover or besides that, what, what are you hoping that someone who's listening to this conversation takes away from it? Here's what I'm hoping. Um, I'm kind of a newbie to the podcast world. I mean, I, I, I educate myself. I'm super intellectually curious, but, um, it was actually my team that, um, told me, Hey, you should, you should reach out to Brandon. I love his uh, future mobility podcast. And that, that's how you and I connected me just giving you that mm-hmm. feedback that my team loves it. Um, what I'm hoping is that people that are listening or maybe watching, I don't know if that's a thing. Um, I'm hoping that their takeaway is. All of us deserve to have a great life, not a good life and not a mediocre life. And greatness is a difficult concept. And I've spent my whole life trying to identify what greatness is. 
I'm not sure I have any answers, but I, I certainly have answers is what what is not great. And I'm working towards greatness. And, you know, my my um, I learned early on in my life through my own personal life and my, my father's career and the trials and tribulations of that, that if at any point in your life you feel stuck or undervalued or demotivated or disillusioned, do something else. Change your situation. Do something to actively change the trajectory of your life. It's within your control, right? Everything around us has been created by humans on some level or another. I mean, not nature, but, you know, nature's still been manipulated by humans to create amazing things. And like we have we have the ability to achieve greatness. And if you don't feel that way, it's time to make that change. Be the main character in your own story. So that's my final thought. Cool. Well, yeah, that's that's a great place to leave. I appreciate that, that Josh. And like I said, appreciate the whole discussion here. A lot, a lot of fun, a lot of good, uh, a lot of good ground too. So thank you. Really, really appreciate it. And best of luck. Yeah, man. Thank you. Best of luck to you. I had a great time. Cheers. Well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Josh Burke. So what stands out? I mean, t- talking the end for first series. So what we talked about the end, right? Strength finders, the importance of understanding yourself and what you do well so that you can then leverage those strengths i think that's paramount right as a leader as a someone who's trying to make an impact even if you're an individual contributor understanding what are the things that you do well and how can you leverage that and i mean there's a ton of nuance that goes into this right like it's you, you can't just simply ignore all kind of weaknesses and areas of execution and operation but you should understand, you know, what uh, we talk about woo, for example, like I'm not, yeah, I'm not a rah-rah guy. I'm never going to be a, but at the same time, like I need to be able to inspire and motivate people. And I'm not going to do that using woo because I understand that that's not something that I do well. So I need to find other ways and I need to find other ways to be able to execute in that space. And it was really fun getting Josh's thoughts. I think a lot of alignment there, obviously something that he's been thought thinking about a lot and that he has a ton of experience there. Expanding on that, the, we didn't get to talk too much about it, but the, the intentionality that Josh puts about working with startup founders on defining the end objective, understanding what's the point of what we're actually doing here, kind of the begin with the end in mind type approach. And I think that's something that I mean, we didn't necessarily drill too deep into this conversation, but I think it actually came out through a lot of the things that, that we talked about. And yeah, I think that the whole thing is is important, and I guess going back to going back to the the intro, some of the things that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, right? We collectively, if you're excited about technology, if you're excited about trying to make an impact, regardless the role, regardless where you are in the career, like getting better at these things, becoming a better leader, whether it's directly through people management and direct responsibility or indirectly in the ability to inspire and motivate other people who are not in your direct report. Like this is, these are foundational, fundamental things that anyone who really wants to make an impact, especially a positive impact, need to be able to do well. And so, yeah, I, I w- could have talked for a long time with Josh here, maybe, maybe have him on again in the future to drill into s- some different topics, but um, hope you enjoyed the conversation it's a bit of a different flavor than some of the things that I've touched on in the past, but uh, that's something I'll, I'll probably continue to do. So I'll leave it there for now.
Really hope you enjoyed this. As always, thanks for listening. More to come next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. If you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future Mobility Podcast.